0: It's my honor to read the psalm tonight. It's uh, like many of the psalms that David wrote, it was in times of duress and trouble. Um, And he particularly talks here about how how long will something take before it's resolved, pleading to the Lord to do it. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long I am to feel anxious in my soul? with grief in my heart all the day. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff.
1: We are uh, jumping into the, we're in the last two weeks of Genesis. It's amazing that we're able to, how much territory you can cover when you teach at least two chapters a week. Um, but tonight, we're going to be continuing in the Joseph narrative. And uh, this is kind of the, um, the pinnacle of this incredible narrative. And, it, and um, it's a narrative that teaches us a lot about uh, God's sovereignty as well as his grace. Uh, it's, it's also a narrative that um, shows us the place Uh, and the rightful place of of human emotion, of the deep desire for family, for intimacy, um, for uh, not only um, God's plan to save uh, and deliver Israel as a nation uh, through Joseph, but also the necessity first of restoration Um, repentance of what Joseph's brothers are there needs to be a restoration of relationship before there can be a salvation of the nation Um, and I think that there's uh, there's a lot in these texts Um, both uh, Joseph uh, and Judah are what we call types Uh, they they are types in the sense of pointing to Christ in fact um, the text that John C taught last when uh judah gives his impassioned speech uh to protect benjamin when he does not know uh, that joseph is the one behind what's happening uh, judah is the is a type in the sense that he's the first to offer his life in exchange for the salvation of another uh and uh this is this is a profound theme uh and Also, something worth noting that the line of Christ himself comes through the line of Judah. Um, But we're going to consider Joseph uh, in more depth today um, in regards to uh, how he connects with the gospel um, in our understanding of who Jesus is. In chapter 45, uh, which is where we begin, verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Uh, This is another way of saying they had no idea what was going on. Uh, And you can only imagine in their minds that uh, something that is, I I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but when you run into someone, I just had this happen um, two weeks ago here. Uh, I finished preaching and and I was uh, walking behind the sound booth and um, I look up and there's a man standing there and he says, Josh, I really enjoyed your, your book. And I just stopped and I just stood and stared at him. And that, uh, and it's like my brain was computing this familiarity, but I could not, I just couldn't get my bearings. And I realized it was my dear friend, Clay, um, who was the first guy to mentor me when I got saved. Um, and was the first guy to, but I hadn't seen him in I haven't seen him in over a decade, and you know, we are getting older, uh, and he's aged very gracefully. Uh, but, but it was just this weird moment where it was like, I couldn't get my head around it. I mean, you can imagine with the length of time that Joseph, and he's dressed like an Egyptian at this point. Uh, he probably looks like a completely different man, and so the brother's dismay is like, we don't know what is, what is happening right now but i think that the the other thing that's worth noting here uh, is this is one of those moments where uh, we have insight into what i refer to as the pathos of god what it means to be made in the image of god uh, means primarily that we are a people that are made for a relationship for god is relationship within himself Um, but we are also a people that god has made in his image and, and part of that image is um, our ability to feel things deeply uh, it's interesting that Egyptian wisdom literature uh, considered the showing of emotion as something inappropriate, um, almost um, unenlightened and so with with that view uh, it's, it's the, the note is that we're here there's like a wisdom that is greater than that of that of Egypt that there is there is no diminishment of what it means to be human by the by the shedding of tears but our culture as well uh, struggles with um, especially for men the um, appropriateness or the um, willingness to allow people into our emotions what we are really feeling in fact Uh, one of the I think the greatest missteps of the Puritan movement was the stoicism that went along with it um, which was uh, was almost a distrust and Christians are notoriously guarded uh, in general that almost the idea that to be holy is to somehow not be moved uh, or to not not display because emotions aren't what guide us but the fact the immovable truth of who god is but that's bs that's not that's not the gospel that's not how jesus was uh he was one who's uh, yes he was his emotions were always under control but his emotions were definitely on display he wept he was angry uh he was grieved uh he he spoke directly and bluntly he his frustrations were felt uh, I mean, how many times do you say, oh, you have little faith? Um, so I don't know where it is al- along the Christian, uh, the, you know, the timeline where um, we uh, decided that it was best for us to just, um, if we want to really show the world that we follow Jesus, is to pretend like we're not impacted or affected by pain. I, I actually remember the first time I was struck by the weirdness of that, that kind of perspective um was a very very well-known pastor lost his daughter and and he got up and preached that sunday and did not weep in front of the congregation and it was almost like he was he was basically trying to show that you know i know i i i know the resurrection i know the victory of jesus over death and therefore i shall not grieve this girl like what are you talking about dude? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You should a you shouldn't even be in the pulpit Right after your daughter dies. I just what he do- What are you doing? Not that I'm here to judge him, but I am um, <laughs> uh, But the thing that I'm actually It's less bothersome to me that he that he uh, That he that he preached it's far more bothersome to me that he did not demonstrate to the people the appropriateness of being grieved by death yes Jesus has triumphed over death but that does not change the fact that death is still an enemy and it hurts us deeply Um, that's inhuman to not allow ourselves your child dying like what Uh, and I think that the thing that we read in the Patriarchs uh, and in Genesis is uh, these people seem to be filled with emotion uh, and sometimes good and sometimes bad always mixture uh, but here, Joseph, um, th- this is a boiling point. Uh, this is the thing, the very thing that he has been waiting for his whole life is the restoration. And he has begun to see the claret, with clarity God's providential hand um, in his particular situation. Um, and now we're going to move into Joseph, not only um, convincing his brothers that it is indeed him, uh, but it is also Joseph not not just simply having to convince them that it's him, but it's also Joseph having to convince them that he does not mean them harm, knowing what they did to him. So look what is look what it says in verse four. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Uh, by the way, he says, uh, he says and Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Um, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. He said, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. This is the first line. Joseph is the only one who could have known that. Um, and, and so the, this is, this is a, 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 um, a piece of Joseph trying to share with them the information I like trust me when I tell you that I am your brother because I'm sure at this point there's still a serious and significant sense of, of disbelief. And keep in mind, the narrative is, is that they just have been sitting there thinking that they are dead, that they're, <laughs> that they're done for um, based upon uh, what Joseph did, which is why, my, why uh, Isaac, this, this old Jewish man that I worked for when I was a painter said that he thought Joseph was a terrible son because how could he do that to his father? <laughs> and, I was like, uh, and I I understand uh, the point is that there's, this is a lot of delayed, you know, we're just reading quickly through a few chapters. Think about the time it would take to go all the way back. Um, and then uh, Joseph leaving them in the suspense, but there's a reason for all of it. And it's part of God's um, bringing restoration uh, to this family. Before he can bring salvation to the nation and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life now here is one of those mysterious moments where Joseph essentially is saying hey it wasn't you at least on the surface level it seems like he's saying it wasn't you who sent me here it was God who sent me here um, and this has led to what I would refer to as a pretty ugly doctrine um, uh, I think a misunderstanding of a very beautiful doctrine which is the idea that God is responsible for everything that happens um, and, and what I mean by that is that everything that we do has been designed by God for us to do it. And so there is a deterministic kind of mindset. Um, and, and by the way, the, Augustine was probably the father of this particular, interp- what we call meticulous providence. Uh, and Augustine was the greatest influence on Calvin. Um, and Calvin's interpreters took it even further which was this idea that God is in control of everything and if God is in control of everything, then God by necessity, and this was is, this is all part of the time in Europe, which um, enlightenment and rationalism uh, was beginning to take control even of our, um, of, of um, how we interpret theology. Uh, so the attempts to erect, create a um, what we call systematic theology, to create these kind of airtight um, systems to explain every facet of the scripture and to find ways to put every verse into, the, into this infrastructure that, um, that leaves zero space for mystery. Um, and what happens is that all of a sudden you're taking verses that are, you know, circles and shoving them into holes that are squares you know, and because it doesn't work that way. And there is a tremendous amount of tension in scripture and there is a tremendous amount of push and pull. Um, and we have to understand, that's why I actually dislike systematic theology in general. I love theology, um, but I, I would much rather, um, uh, I would much rather be uh, driven by what I refer to as a biblical theology over a systematic theology. And all Systematic theology means is that there basically are categories created, an infrastructure, and then Scripture is forced into those categories until you have this kind of neat thing. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure the Scripture itself says that God's ways are not our ways. Um, and I'm also pretty sure that the concept that God is somehow responsible for Joseph being in Egypt uh, is, is maybe partially true uh, in the sense that God is the author of the story and has the ability to redirect, to repurpose, and to reutilize. But we must be very careful to not make God responsible for evil. Now, Joseph himself says, what you intended for evil, God has intended for good or has repurposed for good. That is God's, sovereignty his sovereignty is not His determined will his sovereignty is his freedom to do what he wants in accordance with his character and purposes so I think that this is one of those passages that can hang us up like you mean God is Responsible for the bad things that happen to us you ever hear someone like like God gave me cancer like Why does God have to be the God will use your cancer? of course but he doesn't need to be the author of something that kills you. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not, it's not a possibility, but I'm just like the quick conclusion, uh, a the attempts to spiritualize everything in, in the wrong way, to make God responsible for something that we, should, that we aren't necessarily supposed to be okay with. Like this, this should never put us in the position where we should think, oh, what Joseph is saying is like, It was the right thing that you did what you did he is not saying that Uh, he is not saying that at all Uh, there is always consequences for uh, for sin and what they did to Joseph was sin and God is not responsible for sin is my point Um, so Joseph means what he's saying in that God has taken what they intended for evil and he has He has redirected it toward his redemptive purposes, repurposed it and has never lost control of the story. And I think that that is a beautiful thing that still allows the tension and still creates a responsibility on our part for the things that we do because I would never make God responsible for the terrible things in my life. Um, and, And I mean the terrible things that I am responsible for in my life. Uh, because a deterministic worldview means that if I do something really terrible, well, that's just what God designed me to do. Well, that's ridiculous. And, and that, that actually negates the responsibility of confession and repentance and all those things. So I could go on and on about this topic because it's an important one. And how we view God, and I actually believe that the lack of emotion that came from the Puritans was... Um, in. Uh, in part due to the ways that God's character and nature was presented, which is that God, because everything is determined and controlled by God, that he has some kind of weird secret mean streak, um, and, and uh, we should be more terrified of him than we should feel close to him. And that's not what I see in the face of Jesus. So, not that there isn't a place for... for um, uh, for holy fear, uh, but not in the way that that turns God into, you know, what Wesley said. Your God, your God is my devil. Uh, we we, sh- we have to be very careful to never turn God into a monster. And he says, so do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. For God sent me um, before you to preserve it. The other thing that I want you to notice that um, Joseph does here. Uh, Is something that is very very profound um, and and is something that he's doing which is instead of showing them justice that is giving them what they deserve he is redirecting their focus from their sins to grace and that is a profound thing Um, God has actually preserved your life through your sinful actions In spite of your sin he is preserving your life and I think that this is the responsibility that we have as Christians Um, And in you know, this is not, you know, Joseph does what every Christian should do uh, Which is to turn our attention away from sin toward grace and what I mean by that is not not escaping or ignoring the reality of sin but um, as but we focus in on the one who has conquered sin and death we turn our eyes upon Jesus because that is our motivation for sanctification um, it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance uh, and so this is why I always have such an issue with um, with you know the, cl- the classic picture of hellfire and brimstone preaching uh, like we need to put the fear of hell in people um, so they'll turn to God Me being afraid of hell may turn me to God for a moment But it will not keep me following God if I don't believe in the depths of my being that he loves me It is the fact that he loves me in spite of my sin that actually convicts me so deeply of my sin um, And makes me want to live differently Uh, And so I think that this is one of those moments where mercy is on display in a very profound way for the famine has been in the land these two years, verse 6. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plow, um, plowing or, nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This statement is repeated three times. And what, it is, what I'm trying to kind of hammer in is this, is that God directs the gaze of human guilt to achieve his good purposes. <laughs> uh, and this is, uh, this is a profound mystery. That's the, the whole concept of his ability to take the dissonant notes of our existence and bring beauty and good out of it. So I, in what Joseph is saying, he is by no means um, saying that what his brothers did was good or right. Um, what he's saying is that God has utilized it to bring about the very, your attempt to bring my destruction is actually um, the very thing that is gonna, going to bring your salvation. What does that remind you of? Is it not good that one die so that the many can live? isn't that the, uh, the, the, the statement of Caiaphas if, if, if one perish so that every he didn't realize how true that statement was that that Jesus when when Peter says you cannot go you cannot go to Jerusalem you can you cannot we cannot allow you to be put to death um, what's what is Jesus's response get behind me Satan um, he is going to utilize or commandeer Satan's primary tool, which is the utilization of hatred and violence, decreation, as I was talking about this morning. He is going to take Satan's primary tool, which is jealousy and hatred, which ultimately leads in covetousness, which leads to this incredible violence and, uh, and allows himself to become the scapegoat in in commandeer that doesn't mean that he is okay with evil. It means that he is in his wisdom commandeering that which is intended for evil and brings and it becomes the, the, the means by which all of us have found salvation. Uh, and so there you have once again, uh, even a picture of this all points toward the gospel. Uh, it, it points us uh, toward Jesus. He has made me. That is God has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt hurry and go up to my father and say to him thus says your son Joseph God has made me Lord of all Egypt come down to me do not tarry you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Uh, once again, you see this picture of the gospel, of this idea that that um, instead of receiving what they deserve, which is judgment not only are they receiving forgiveness for what they have done but they are actually receiving something that they don't deserve at all which is which is blessing instead of instead of uh, instead of I forgive you but I'll never trust you again you ever ever had someone say that to you you're like no I never have I have Uh, um, yeah I forgive you but I don't like you (laughs) <laughs> this is this is something that is far, you know, I was, it, I, I think we love, we love to take people like C.S. Lewis who are like kind of, you know, like, and we treat them almost like second, like, it's like second tier scripture. I think for some of us, it almost becomes more uh, considered scriptural to us than scripture itself. And we never, because I remember reading a thing that Lewis says, um, we're called to love everyone, but we don't have to like everyone. And we're like well Lewis said it that's true that's how it is uh, I, the Bible doesn't say that uh, what the Bible says is that when we actually live with an other orientation that Jesus has the ability by his spirit to transform how we view people um, to even transform how we feel about them um, and I used to take that that there, now I'm not saying that um, that I like it. there's several people here that I'm not fond. No, I'm just joking. I totally made that up. Um, but the the fact is is we all struggle with personality types that don't. I know that I annoy the heck out of so many people. I mean, my my wife has to learn to live with a, a vision of grace for me because I'm not an easy man to live with. Uh, but it's not. It wouldn't be very beneficial for our marriage if she's just like, I love you, but I don't like you. Like, that's, that's not that, is, that sounds like a lifelong prison to me. Um, and and I, th- I think here, what we see in Joseph is so much more than forgiveness. Um, but we see, actually, uh, not only a willingness to forgive, but, an, but a true desire. And, and you can see, like, if you were wrong like he was, how easy it would have been for the root of bitterness to take control. It doesn't matter he could be the, he could have complete control of the kingdom of, of Egypt and be the most miserable man because he is held on to an insatiable bitterness um, and a desire for vengeance toward his brothers we hear stories of that there's stories throughout human history of people that that were Have you watched the film Oppenheimer I mean the guy that tried to bring Oppenheimer down it was like he was Oppenheimer embarrassed him publicly and he never forgave him for it and went out of his way to destroy his career uh, and, and uh, such a fascinating um, fascinating depiction Robert Downey Jr. Um, plays the the man um, in government who made it his mission and even pretended to be a friend when in reality he was you you made a public You made me look dumb and I will make you pay. And it was, he could never let go of this petty thing. Um, And he was willing to destroy a man's life. Joseph is a picture of what real forgiveness is because true forgiveness, and I experienced this with my dad, it wasn't just that I forgave him. I actually found that I came to love him. And I think that that is more of a picture of grace. And so I just want you to even think about that in terms of your own relationships. There's people, we say this like, well, I, you know, I love them, but I can't stand being around them. Uh, I know people can be difficult, but the more we realize that we ourselves are difficult, uh, probably the more grace we can actually view others with. Um, And I think that there's a lot you can learn from Joseph as a type of Christ um, here, when peter asked jesus how many times he should forgive his brother seven times he says 70 times seven jesus doesn't just mean accept uh you know forgive him he's saying be restored be reconciled be make the relationship right is i think at the heart of what what forgiveness is meant to lead us to um won't you be glad that jesus doesn't just forgive you of your sins but actually likes you too I mean when do we actually take the time to think about what that means that while we were yet still sinners Christ Jesus died for us that our forgiveness actually is the outcome of his love not the creation of his love forgiveness doesn't create love God loves us and because he loves us he forgives us Um, and I think that Joseph loved his brothers and forgiveness flows easily from grace Grace is the foundation by which forgiveness flows. Not by, forgiveness does not is not the thing that comes before grace. Grace is the reason forgiveness is even happening. Okay. Look what he goes on to say. Come. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. All that you have. Verse eleven. There I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that this is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after, after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me and i will give you the best of the land in egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land and you joseph are commanded to say do this take wagons from the land of egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of egypt is yours the sons of israel did so and joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for their journey to each and all he gave them change of clothes but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes um, I want to just pause there doesn't uh, that remind you of a parable in which Jesus talks the payment for the for the laborers in the field is, and they uh, didn't matter what time they got hired they all got paid the same and then the, there's they're like why is he why is he getting paid the same as me He just came on it's like this is a picture of the sovereign grace of God but notice there's no complaints here the restoration of relationship is in place and there's an acceptance that God's that God is is free to, to do what he wants Um, In accordance with the character he can bless as much as he wants. They've all received blessing Um, and this this uh, double blessing on Benjamin um, should uh, Shouldn't have been um, a place of jealousy for the brothers and in fact uh, They're so relieved and this shows the picture that the greatest gift that um, that someone can have is the relief of a guilty conscience so much more important like you can give benjamin 2020 outfits the the anguish that we create for ourselves when we allow sin to go unconfessed um and we don't experience the forgiveness and the weight that is lifted off of us when that occurs um it i think that this is it, it requires um the reception of grace and the acceptance of God's forgiveness and acceptance of us as people um, For us to not then become jealous of what others get or how others are used um, It's like when we realize I'm just grateful that God loves me that he's for me uh, Then we it's the very thing that removes competition removes and this is and this is the true test too because Benjamin is Is Joseph's brother in a way uh, that the other this is the full brother and remember the favor that was shown to Joseph was the very thing that led the brothers um, their their jealousy and covetousness over what his coat of many colors um, which I just immediately think of Dolly Parton Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard her song the coat of many colors Uh, but that, that, that gift was the very thing that said, we gotta get rid of him. He's like having dreams that we're bowing down to him. Dad likes him better than us. Now that this is a, a true sign of their own maturity, their journey um, of, of guilt and coming to, coming to terms with the reconciliation that has just occurred. So this is a complete shift um, in the narrative. It's a complete turnaround. Um, and reversal of what we saw in the beginning. Uh, so, and I, I think that this is, um, this is a beautiful picture of, um, of God, uh, God's provision um, of acceptance, forgiveness, mercy, um, is one of the g- great keys to eradicating competition and covetousness amongst his people. Then look what he says. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, well, oh, it says, to his father he sent as follows 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers um, away, and they departed, and he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. In other words, listen, I have forgiven you. God has forgiven you. Now you must forgive each other. There's no, with what you've experienced, he who's been forgiven much loves much. There is a call. Once again, it's pointing very, very, very similarly to, the, to the, how the gospel is meant to be played out in our lives. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan um, to their father, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart has become and his heart became numb for he did not believe them but when they told him all the words of Joseph which he said to them and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him the spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel said it is enough Joseph my son is still alive I will go and see him before I die (laughs) you know uh, it, it's interesting to think about how uh, How Jacob uh, At one time had fought with Laban over possessions and Now none of those things matter at all and what he wants his relationship what he wants is his son um, And this this is a, the journey his journey is is coming around Jacob the deceiver um, is now truly Um, being Israel uh, there is a strength uh, his in the title uh, of Israel um, uh, is is uh, is given here to remind us uh, that this is who he has become so Israel took his journey chapter 46 with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said Jacob Jacob and he said here I am and then he said I am God the God of your father this is what he always tells the patriarchs do not be afraid and go down to Egypt and there I will make you into a great nation I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes um, this is the only theophany in the Joseph narrative where God actually speaks um, uh, in a divine or miraculous way. And it is the last of the theophanies amongst the patriarchs. The next recorded special revelation uh, is actually with Moses and the burning bush, which is 430 years later. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's always one of those things where you're like does that mean that god didn't speak to anybody during this time i think that it uh, it's meant that god communicate joseph is the great example of that is like joseph seems to be very aware of god's presence in his life we aren't given any indication that there's these like direct theophanies um happening um but this is how we as children of god live by faith i have heard of people that have heard Uh, have heard God speak to them. Uh, My friend who um, got saved in in Iran um, where there was a a literal voice that said my blood will wash away your sins and she was a Muslim. That's a profound thing and you hear about that kind of of activity in places like the Middle East, places where scripture is not available. Um, But you know I always think of what Jesus says, you know, um, they, you know they, we have the, the scripture, or w- when he tells the parable of Lazarus, and he says, uh, and, and the rich man um, says, send Lazarus back to tell my family um, that torment is real, that the afterlife is real. And he says, he has the law and the prophets. If they won't they have the law and the prophets if they will not believe that they will not believe a ghost uh, and i think that there is there is something there is a god does speak and he's perpetually speaking um, the the problem is, is that we have to learn how to hear the voice of god and we hear that through a whole variety of ways how do i know god's voice well i think the scripture is is the this is god's word to us the word of god is living um, and it is it is meant as the very means that point us to the living Christ. God's word is is always the litmus test. This is how we are to test spirits. We can feel all kinds of promptings, spiritual promptings. People hear voices all the time. Uh, we were just talking about this before before service started. The, we people hear voices all the time. We usually call that mental illness. Um, a, and uh, and. And it may or may not be uh, but all I would say is I don't care what voice you hear uh, you hear a supernatural voice uh, you better be quick to test that voice and the question is 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 that voice pointing you to the authority of Jesus as Lord Uh, and and is what that voice telling you align with the scriptures Uh, and more than that does it align with what you're, there's, there's multiple layers of protection for us um, in discerning God's will for our lives. I mean, we get so worked up about what His will is for us personally. I'm like, love God and love your neighbor. If you just did those two things, everything else would fall into place anyway. Uh, but I think that the church community, we test things by living life together. Nothing will turn you into a heretic faster than, than living your Christian life alone. That's why I don't generally trust the mystics, um, who uh, the, and what I mean by mystics is not what I call practical mysticism, which is practicing the presence of God um, and believing that Christ is present. I'm talking about mysticism where people separate themselves out, the ascetic life. I am separating from the world so that I can have communion with God. Um, Any solitude that, that we participate in should be a solitude that is meant to serve community. And if it doesn't lead us into community and it doesn't lead us into the world that God is saving, then I, I take issue with it. And I don't trust it. Like lots of, lots of men and women have had revelations and strange uh, strange uh, communion with angelic beings. Uh, it's how almost every world religion, it <laughs> seems like, started I mean that's what happened to Muhammad. I don't doubt that something appeared to him. Uh, That's what Joseph Smith claimed. I kind of doubt that something happened to him. He seemed more like a con man. Uh, But maybe he wasn't. Maybe something did appear to him. But the revelation he gave did not align with Scripture. That's all I'll say um, in the Book of Mormon. And so I think that this is, like, I think it's good for us to be reminded that this is an unusual event. And yet I think Christians often get frustrated that this isn't the thing that's happening to them uh it's like we want the mount of transfiguration but we forget that that only happened once and i think many of us will you know i've had a handful of insane kind of unexplainable experiences where god's presence surpassed what i would call the normal experience but they are few and far between in my many many years as a christian I walk by faith and I don't need any of those things. I don't need a miracle um, other than the miracle of my own regeneration um, and the regeneration I see in others. Uh, nothing inspires me uh, like seeing a life transformed by the gospel. <laughs> that's, a mir- that's a miracle. Ian is the thing that is the one that makes me, I believe if God saved that dude, like Jesus is real, he is real. I walked with this man I know I know what I'm saying (laughs) and he feels the same about me Um, no we would we all we all say that we should see that you're saved that is a miracle like Jesus saved you like you were going this way and now you're going this way like like what what do we want I'm like I was like you I'm not gonna believe until I see someone raised from the dead well if I die I always say don't raise me from the dead I'll punch you in the face because um, I want to be with Jesus <laughs> So, uh, this is This is the, the reality Is that this is a mysterious thing This theophany um, And it is the establishment of the patriarchs And the establishment of God's redemptive Purposes through a nation So Notice what he goes on to say I am the God, your Father, do not be afraid For there I will make you into a great nation I myself will go down with you to Egypt And I will bring you up again So Don't worry, you will be brought back to this land. You can see why there are still wars happening on this piece of property in the world. Uh, There is a long, long history. All of the narratives around the idea that Israel or somehow um, what we call modern Israel is nothing more than um, colonialism is completely ignorant of human history. Uh, both the Jews and the Palestinians, which was connected to ancient Philistine, um, have thousands of years um, connection to this land, which is why it's such a violent um, and such a tense reality. And it is a land also that's been conquered by more empires than we can count on two hands. Um, So I, I I always find this like such a fascinating thing is like, like, they don't have the right to, what are we talking about here? Like, this is a, this is a, uh, that we're reading ancient scriptures that speak of this very piece of property right now. <laughs> um, and Israel has a deep tie, long historical tie to this. Um, so look what he goes on to say. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry uh, him he also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of canaan and came into egypt jacob and all his offspring with him his sons and his son's sons with him his daughters and his son's daughters all of his offspring he brought with him into egypt now these are the names of the descendants of israel who came into egypt jacob and his sons reuben jacob's firstborn and the sons of reuben Hanok, palu hezron and carmi the sons of simeon Jemuel. Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, please someone name their son Jamin, that's so good. Uh, Zohar and Shaul and the son of the Canaanite, the son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Gehath, Kahath and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan and the sons of Perez were were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Cuba, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jahil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padam Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, all together, his sons and his daughters, number 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Emna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asneth, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni. <laughs> That's also good. Jezer and Shillem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Um, This here is the nation of Israel in miniature. Uh, And um, which is of significance he had sent judah ahead of him to joseph to show the way judah now takes the lead um to show the way before him to goshen and they came into the land of goshen and then joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet israel his father in goshen he presented him to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while israel said to joseph now let me die since i have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Notice the, the switch. What did, uh, what did Israel say before when they asked for Benjamin? You are trying to send me to the grave. Now that he has been restored to his son, he sees his life is complete. I've, now death is something that is a, a completion, if you will, of a cycle there is a restoration here um, and I've, once again those cool like little parallel passages uh, that that there's he's at peace where before turmoil is killing him now he's at peace and ready to meet his maker um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing uh, which is something that we all uh, you know a book I always recommend that we I think if I could get every 20-something-year-old to read it uh, is that um, there is um, a poet, um, uh poet laureate. Oh, of course, I'm going to go blank on his name. Oh, Donald Hall. Uh, and he wrote a book called Essays After 80. Uh, and it's so good uh, because it It's this very profound and honest, you know, his wife died of cancer, which was this massive loss for him Uh, And he just he just talks honestly about all the things that he learned his pride in his youth his like all these And it's not a Christian that I can tell but it's just it's an incredible insight into a a long life and Reflections on the things that we waste our time on our youth. I just if if only we um, we respected the elderly more um and recognized um the wisdom that is available to us i i love i i have a real love um for uh talking uh with my elders and my nana is 89 and she is the dearest woman in the world to me i think about uh, my dear friends isabel and tom moore who were always at my bible studies at solid rock who were 93 both of them were 93 and had been married for 74 years. Uh, and they died, they died, they both died like once Isabel died. Um, Tom died like or Tom died and then Isabel died literally like a month later. It was like that's how connected they were. But it's there, there's this when you see someone, it's like, I am ready. That's a that's a pretty powerful and profound thing. Uh, when life has been lived, um, there's a fullness of life. And in a a readiness um, for its close. Look what he goes on to say. Um, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, this is verse 31. I will go up to tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds and for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Um, This statement is actually a protection um, uh, of, of the unique identity of Israel as a nation. Um, and until uh, that, that patriarchal promise of being returned to the land is restored um, so there, there's insinuating here that there's a time of refreshing before before uh, Jacob is to meet Pharaoh uh, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan they are now in the land of Goshen And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh Pharaoh said to his brothers What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh your servants are shepherds as our fathers were They said to Pharaoh we have come to sojourn in the land For there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen Then Pharaoh said to Joseph your father and your brothers have come to you the land of Egypt is before you Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father, and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. I want you to notice something. Jacob, unlike his sons, never refers to himself as Pharaoh's servant. You notice that? Uh, the other thing that that, um, uh, that Jacob does, and it once again, points back to Um, something I said in the beginning which is Jacob is uh, people always ask me like why are you so honest about your own brokenness Um, and this is something that I am deeply committed to in the church uh, and it's something that I believe is key to actually the church moving forward in a healthy way Um, post-COVID is that we we have seen pastor after pastor the age of the megachurch uh, and the celebrity preachers and the the um, the privatization of life where we hide our brokenness um, so that we can present to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep that's not what we see in Scripture and when I look here at um, at Jacob what do you, what is the thing that that you that is noted his humility there's a strength and power. He doesn't refer to himself as Pharaoh's servant. He is he's a patriarch He's he has spoken with God um, but the thing that he says of himself is My days have been difficult There's an honesty. He doesn't try to present himself like just because he's a child of God doesn't mean that he that he has to pretend like life has been easy or, or that he's been perfect he says my days have been short few and evil and that's he's not saying about that and from my read and from what we know about his own story that he has been he's not playing the victim here he is he is acknowledging that he himself has been the source of much of his own anguish Um, that's we should take note of this this is an honesty um, that actually creates even more authority um, when we actually walk humbly before God and before others, we actually, we, it, it's one of the ways that we remove the power of people's ability to attack us. Um, what if we were just honest with, with our brokenness enough that, that there, we're not even leaving enough space for people to it? You know, like if someone's like, you're this, I'll be like, yeah, I've been saying that from the pulpit for years. Like, tell me something new. Uh, I think a self-awareness, and I'm not talking about self-deprecation um, as a means of avoiding real, hard conversations. Uh, you know, the, you think about it. The best comedians get away with saying insane things um, because they're self-deprecating. Like all my favorite comedians, their charm is in the fact that they make themselves the brunt of their of the joke which allows them to say really crazy things. So we should probably as preachers take more cues from some, some comedians, but I won't name who I think are great because then I would be compromising my integrity before you. And I don't want you to think that I would ever, ever watch things that I ought not to watch because it's important that I present the ideal. Um, yeah, no, I, I could give you a list, but I'll give it to you privately. You can ask me if you wanna know. Uh, all right. Um, now there was no food in the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of egypt and the land of canaan languished by reason of the famine and joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of egypt and the land of canaan the exchange of the grain there's a shift now in narrative focusing in specifically restoration of relationship as has been achieved um, which has brought about the salvation of israel uh, but not just the salvation of Israel, but God's ability to preserve the surrounding lands, even um, through uh, through His servant Joseph. And Joseph bought the money into the Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone?" And Joseph answered, "Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone." So they brought their livestock to joseph and joseph gave them in exchange for the horses the flocks the herds and the donkeys He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year And when that year was ended they came to him the following year and said to him We will not hide from my lord that our money is all spent the herds of our livestock Are my lord's there is nothing left in the sight of my lord, but our bodies and our land Why should we die before your eyes both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die And that the land may not be desolate So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh for all the Egyptians sold their fields because of the famine was severe on them And the land became Pharaoh's as for the people he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other only the land of priests he did not buy, for the priests had fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. By the way, I want you to notice, Israel does not become slaves in the land that they are pilgrims in at this point. Egyptians become slaves to their own land. Um, and this shows this, the reversal of uh, what would have been the demise of Israel and they would have starved to death in Canaan um, but God has not only preserved them but blessed them and and the last shall be first and the first shall be last uh, and it, it's, it's interesting that Pharaohs come and go and, and we're told uh, that at the beginning of Exodus that they did not remember Joseph um, or those promises and now Israel becomes um, there's a reversal, and Israel becomes the servants, but God hears the cry, uh, which is such a profound, um, I love that, that passage, that God heard the cry. Um, so then it says, And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, that the land of the priests alone not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, So the days of Jacob the year of his life were 147 years and when the time drew near that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said to him if now I have found favor in your sight Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in in their burying place. He answered. I will do as you have said And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. We will stop there. This is the word of the Lord.